Well, good morning. Well, my name is Aaron Stritzel. Uh, it's great to be with you. Um, I am a United Methodist pastor, pastoring a church, two churches actually in uh, rural Montana right now, getting ready to transition. A uh, friend of Pastor Ryan Gear, and I love the well. I love what the well's doing. I'll talk more about that in, in the end. Uh, but today we continue on our sermon series of, um, I was going to say faith after doubt, because I was thinking in my mind, oh, I, that was the last sermon series I believe I talked on. And I had this um, phrase where I said, I have this author crush on Brian McLaren because I've read so many of his books and his books are like right here. Um, I might have more somewhere else, but they're all stacked right behind me. So in my mind, I was thinking faith after doubt. Um, but that's not it. We're talking about the family tree as we discuss different Christian denominations. Uh, our goal isn't to criticize or critique, but to really explore, to learn where they originated from. What are some key distinctives and can we draw anything? What can we learn from these different faith traditions? So uh, before we begin, I, I just think it's helpful to remind ourselves that the early Christians weren't called Christians. They were just called followers of this way. There was this movement that began in the Jewish tradition that kind of moved out, had some lumpy sort of struggles and debates about who can be in, and eventually the Gentiles were welcome. But it was this movement of people called followers of the way. Here's a little image. I think Pastor Ryan has shared different ones for you in the past. But two major splits that actually for the first over thousand years, there was one church until 1054 where the church in the east and the church in the west had a disagreement and split. So it's interesting that for over a millennium, there was one church. Um, as now we have so many different denominations, it's you know fascinating to think back what that might have been. They didn't all agree for the first thousand years. There was diversity until they finally split off. The second major split, if you follow that line down, the year 1517, people began to protest the Roman Catholic Church. Martin Luther was one of the main leaders. Eventually, the church moved west into places like England, and there was such a division between Protestants and Catholics in the country of England that the leadership said, how do we fix this? Let's create, let's blend both of them together and create a new denomination. And they did, called it Anglicanism or the Church of England. Um, and, and that was meant to be a blend to actually a pragmatic concern to say, hey, let's unify. Let's not divide over these things. Well, while that was going off, there was groups of people that said, well, we need to take this even farther. We need to even go back further into the early church and say, we've added things that don't need to be added that shouldn't have been added, actually. And so they called them derogatorily nonconformists or dissenters, or some of them were called Puritans because they wanted to purify the church. And they were really made fun of and even endured a lot of criticism. Um, and, and they moved persecution. They moved from there into places like Holland and others. And eventually some of them made their way over to America. And it's interesting to note that America as, you know, it's being kind of come together in the, the late 18th century and early 19th century is America's beginning to be birthed as a new nation. You have new leadership and what can new leadership and new politics and new governance do? Also, you have this kind of colliding of religious ideas, right? You have uh, the founder of the United Methodist Church, John Wesley, who actually never wanted to found a separate uh, denomination 
from the Church of England. He was an Anglican priest, came over and kind of started this whole other movement that emerged as the United Methodist Church eventually. And you had other groups of people there. Specifically during that time, you had some Christians who said, well, we want to take this even further and baptism, which was huge in the church, baptism was really the initiation right into the church and the church, all the different churches would baptize infants as welcoming them into the church. And there began to be a group of people that says, we don't think that was biblical. We don't think that's how the early church did it. We think that they waited until they were old enough to make a commitment to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Now, Uh, Before we get too far into that, I just wanted to talk briefly about baptism itself. And on Easter Sunday, I had the opportunity to baptize five different individuals. And and part of the Methodist Church, um, we don't always baptize baptize by immersion. We'll baptize infants as well. Uh, uh, Most often, we'll have like a little baptismal font. So a little bowl on a sort of pedestal. And I grabbed a bowl and poured over water three different times, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And part of that is their vows to say, I commit to following the way of Jesus, but also for us as United Methodists, it's also a way of a community saying, but we commit to partner, to support, to encourage, to pray for these people as well, and we welcome them. They're part of our family here, the family of God, but our local faith community as well. Baptism actually has its origins in the Jewish tradition. Where in the first century, many, most Jews would go through some bathing purification rituals where they would immerse themselves up and and come out bathing, yes, their physical bodies, but also their spiritual bodies as well. And some of those uh, kind of um, segments within the Jewish tradition, like the Essenes, which some people believe that John the Baptist was really influenced by, might have been a part of the Essene community, would do this sometimes, often three times a day. They would emerge themselves, immerse themselves in water and come up and sort of this ritual. Well, eventually in the book of Acts, we see this movement coming out of the church and we see disagreement and debate within the apostles, specifically Paul and Peter, about who can be in the church and what that looks like as most of them were Jews at that time. And then we have these Gentiles or non-Christians coming in and there was like, well, do they have to get circumcised? Uh, They're grown adult men. Um, Not exactly an easy thing to consider. Painful process, I imagine, when you're an adult male. Not something that I would easily do. Um, Is there something else that we can do that's a symbol for them and baptism became the symbol of circumcision for the what eventually was called the Christian church right um, and, and so that's a little bit of a history of baptism and so you have in America you have these groups of people they were first called Anna Baptists Anna simply means to or simply means again an Anabaptist is somebody who baptized over again well the rest of the churches did not like that because they disagreed with that which led to some persecution and conflict. Eventually, the name was sort of shortened to just mean Baptist. Now, there's some distinctions. A lot of the Anabaptists became Baptists because they share a lot in common back then. But now, today, there there's some distinctions we'll talk about briefly. Mennonite and Amish are probably two of the, the more well-known Anabaptist faith traditions. In the 1700s, you had preachers like Jonathan Edwards, and George Whitfield that would come and they would preach outside to hundreds and sometimes thousands of people. And there was this great revival happening. 
people were converting to Christianity. It was known as the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, later became president of what would become Princeton University. He's probably most well known for a sermon titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Interestingly enough, I mean, the title itself says a lot, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? Um, well, we uh, here at the well, we had, um, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? I can't think of his name right off the top of my head. Um, Postcards in Babylon, uh, the author who, of that, Brian Zahn, who also wrote a book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which I think says a lot as well. But so Jonathan Edwards is most famously known for that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So I just wanted to read just a short excerpt of that uh, sermon. You can follow along. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Whew. Heavy. That, that's hellfire and brimstone speaking. Like You won't hear that in most churches today. But... That represents kind of the movement, what was in the air, the theology at that time. This was a part of the first great awakening, what was in the air, so to speak. And then as America became independent, people began to move more west. Now, my west, I don't mean Montana west, I mean like Ohio, western Virginia, western Carolinas, and into Kentucky. And so frontier, you know, they would take their horses and their wagons, then they would move into the woods and they would build um, these communities and they were beginning to scatter. I think there's certain kinds of people that were drawn to this. I mean, I can't help but think it was people who were wanting to live differently, wanting to be adventurous, right? And so they would move out into those places. Uh, religion began to move out and they adapted something from Scotland called camp meetings. Camp meetings, because people were living in rural places scattered out throughout the woods, um, they would try to gather them in to a local place uh, for several days to a week or so. And they would invite preachers to come in and they would preach during this time, oftentimes outdoors. There's a little uh, drawing here that you can, gives you kind of an idea. Um, this is a, a rendition of one of the most well-known camp meetings called Cane Ridge Camp Meeting. Uh, it happened in 1801, uh, about 18 miles north of Lexington, Kentucky. Um, they would set up these week-long um, revivals and people would bring their horses wagons they would camp out they would wake up they would hear sermons they would sing together they would talk together at the campfires and this kind of movement spread and it's known as the second great awakening so i want to talk about baptists here that gives a little bit of the early history of just kind of the, the church in America, what was going on, um, as well as the emergence of Anabaptists and Baptists. And Baptists today make up about 200 different denominations, about 100 million people worldwide. When most people think about Baptists, they actually think about uh, the largest denomination in America, which is Southern Baptists. But not all Baptists fall under that category. Uh, Southern Baptists really uh, broke off from the Baptist tradition 
um, just before the Civil War. So those in the South that were Baptists that were pro-slavery kind of broke off and, and formed the Southern Baptist tradition. Now, since 1995, they've since repented of that. They don't, they're not pro-slavery anymore, but they do still lean pretty conservative culturally and theologically. But then you had a whole Baptists in the North that became known as American Baptists that are more progressive. In fact, they, I went to a progressive uh, inclusive seminary that also was doing a lot of interreligious work. And I chose it for that reason. And then I bumped into these Baptists and I was like, well, I mean, it's kind of interesting that you've chosen this seminary to go to. And they were like, well, no, there's more progressive Baptists, which was the first time that I knew uh, something called the American Baptist. So if you're learning about it now, or if you didn't know that before, until um, recently, you're not alone. Um, there is some diversity, although I think it's fair to say that most Baptists will lean more conservative theologically and also culturally. <clears throat> Almost all the, the churches in your area that are, that are larger, visible churches, well-known churches in Southeast Valley, churches like Cornerstone Mission, Rock Point and Sun Valley are Baptist churches. kind of gives you an idea of uh, the flavor. We'll talk a little bit more about kind of worship style and, and different things here in a bit. But just a couple of Baptist distinctives. First, and this is true especially as they were first beginning, Baptists, they stripped away anything that seemed to be added as a part of the tradition. So um, crosses and sanctuaries, big crosses or icons, clergy collars and garments, incense, saying the Lord's Prayer, which we as Methodists do every, every Sunday. Um, many churches do. They said, well, this feels like something that was added later on as part of the tradition. And most Baptist churches, you won't see a cross or a, not a big cross in the sanctuary. It's built to be kind of... Uh, plain, um, uh, simple pews. You'll probably have um, some sort of altar or stage and maybe a lectionary up front. Um, they they kind of simplify everything. But one of the key distinctives that crosses pretty much all Baptist churches is a believer's baptism by immersion. It's this idea that we don't baptize infants because they're not old enough um, to commit to follow Jesus. We, we believe that the Bible teaches um, us, I'm speaking on behalf of the Baptists here, that uh, we baptize people who are old enough to confess Jesus, to follow Jesus, to make that decision for themselves, and we fully immerse them. We believe that's the, the biblical way of understanding that. I'm going to move on and talk about Pentecostalism, which is the tradition that I was raised on. You'll see seeds of Pentecostalism actually in the camp meetings, where in places like the Cane Ridge, they talk about people falling over um, what some now call saint in the spirit, or they, they talked about people speaking in different tongues, um, or sometimes barking like dogs. Uh, but it didn't really emerge until the early 1900s, really with a man, African-American named William Seymour, who, who began to move in this Pentecostal direction. Um, in terms of numbers, the World Christian Encyclopedia, third edition, came out in 2020, says there's about 644 million Pentecostals and Charismatics. And just a moment on these two words, Pentecostal, Charismatic. Some people will use these words interchangeably. For academic reasons, as we're kind of studying and talking about this, really when Pentecostals refer to whole denominations that are a part of this Pentecostal movement, Charismatic is really meant to be uh, like a hybrid word for those... Uh, how do I explain this? Those um, 
denominations and faith traditions that were influenced by the Pentecostals, but not the whole denomination, just portions. So for example, you might have a charismatic Catholic. Now, Catholics in general aren't Pentecostals, but some of them have been influenced and might call themselves charismatic. You might have a charismatic Baptist, or hopefully that helps you get the point. <clears throat> There's about 19,300 different denominations in the charismatic Pentecostal traditions. Um, about 8.3% of the world, or roughly one in every 12 persons, calls themselves a charismatic or Pentecostal Christian. I think this is still true, but it was for sure when I was going through seminary, was the Pentecostal tradition was the fastest growing segment of the church, predominantly in the global south. Um, Pentecostals, and this word, this idea, really is rooted in um, the text out of the, the book of Acts in chapter 2. So go ahead and read this here together, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And this is post-Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And it says this, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. <coughs> now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. But when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Paphilia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Well, it sounds like a good time. Either way, um, churches that follow the lectionary will celebrate Pentecost, the season of Pentecost, like just like the season of Advent or Lent, celebrate the season of Pentecost, which begins on June 5th, two weeks from the Sunday. Um, we'll read this text and we'll ask what did it mean and what might it mean for us today. Uh, the, the term Pentecost or Pentecostal is actually really one of the defining characteristics which is drawn from this text here, uh, Acts 2 and also 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. The sort of distinctive thing for Pentecost is they believe that baptism by the Spirit is, is seen through the speaking of tongues. Now, Christians uh, vary in their understanding of what it means to be baptized in the Spirit or the Spirit of God being poured out upon us. But for Pentecostals, they mean, well, the evidence of this happening is that you will speak in tongues. And they'll draw that, especially from the book of Acts chapter 2, and say, look, at they spoke in tongues there. Again, um, really, this was launched by an African-American named William Seymour in 1906, uh, who <clears throat> led a revival at the Apostolic Faith Mission on Azusa Street, Los Angeles. And, and through there spread some other great speakers. I was raised in Assemblies of God in Foursquare. Foursquare uh, was really birthed from a woman named Amy, Amy Simple McPherson, who came from the same area as William Seymour. 
Um, it, it, this all happened also as radio and then television was taking off. So there was this movement, this excitement, this emotions. Um, Amy Simple McPherson was one of those like super charismatic entertainers almost. Like she would bring in motorcycles and speak to thousands and sometimes dress up and, and, and um, entertain as well as utilize, you know, radio and TV. And so this kind of movement spread. And there's lots of different Pentecostal denominations today. The largest is the Assemblies of God. Um, if you've heard of Hillsong in Australia, probably know more for their music, their, especially their worship music, or if you listen to contemporary Christian radio at all, you've heard a song from Hillsong, um, no doubt about it. Um, they began as an Assemblies of God church, disaffiliated in 2018, not because of beliefs really, just because they wanted their own freedom uh, in, in different ways. Uh, another church that is um, fairly popular is a church named Bethel in Reading. Again, um, they began as Assemblies of God, but you know, split not really for theological reasons, but for freedom as well. Gives you an idea of what the Pentecostal churches look like. And so when we look at these, you know, different Christian denominations and traditions, the Anabaptists, the Baptists, and the Pentecostals, we ask ourselves, what might we learn from them today? What could we take away? Well, there's four things that I just wanted to highlight today. I invite you to think about these things and ask yourself, would I add something to that? Was there something else that I might draw from these faith traditions? One of the first things that I think we can draw, especially from the Baptist tradition, is the importance of Scripture. All of these different um, traditions value Scripture, but the Baptists in particular um, highlight the importance of Scripture. Now, I would never teach, I was raised in a tradition that taught the inerrancy of the Bible, which means that we interpret it literally, everything that it says happened, happened exactly as it says. Um, I would never say that anymore. Uh, I don't think you would hear that from Pastor Ryan either here at the well, um, but we still value scripture. I. Um, as we were talking about Brian McLaren, who came and spoke here, we, we did a whole sermon series on one of his most recent books, Faith After Doubt. Um, he's recently came out, I think, with another one, um, Why to Stay Christian. I uh, haven't got to read that one yet, but I'm sure I will. Um, and he came and spoke, and I've heard him say this multiple different times. It's impacted me. I, 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 it, it resonates. He says, I don't read the Bible literally. I read it literarily. Meaning this, the Bible isn't just a book. It's a collection of books. It's a library of different books, and it's a library of different literature. It's poetry. Um, it's wisdom literature. Uh, it's narrative. It's myth. Sometimes it's all of those combined, so we try to figure out what is the literature, what did it mean. We also understand there's nuances here, and many of the authors lived in a different time, in a different place. They had different cosmology, different, different understanding of how the world worked and how God was interacting in the world. That doesn't mean we have to disregard it. Um, we can still find value in it. Now, the second thing um, is a heart for sharing the gospel. Anabaptists, Baptists, and Pentecostals are zealous for sharing the gospel. Now, I've had people try to convert me many times. I, I've had Mormons come up to my door and try to convert me. I've had people hand out tracts, you know, the, the, the road to Rome, the Romans road, um, the four spiritual laws, all kinds of different things. Most recently, we, had, we got this mailer um, a couple of months ago from kind of the, the nearby town. Um, it's a larger town, but for Montana, which is nowhere near Phoenix. Anyways, 
and it it had all this stuff about end times and prophecy and all this stuff and I just looked at it I was like no thank you and threw it out well my wife and I we went out for pie just down the street we came home and they had been going door to door and they knocked on our door our boys were home they opened it up they gave them a book on it and they asked if they could pray for them and so our boys, I can only picture this in our mind because our boys are 10 and 12. And they're like, we didn't want to be rude. and We didn't know what else to say. And so they prayed for them right there, which as a pastor made me kind of angry that they would pray for my kids when I'm not there. Um, and so we might understand what the gospel is a little bit differently and how to go best about that sharing the gospel. For example, I highlight really what Jesus said is the most important command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I feel like this idea that we are beloved children of God is one of the core um, foundational beliefs about the gospel. Often the gospel message, um, I'm going to share, I'm excited because I'm going to share a little bit of this in a few weeks, where we, we start with shame and sin. Instead of I think the story starts with original blessing and goodness. And it's calling us back, reminding us that we are beloved children of God. And I think the invitation of the gospel is to participate with God. It's say God is working to bring healing, hope, and reconciliation to the world. This is one thing we, we really draw from the Anabaptists, right? That God is nonviolently not going to coerce people but invite people. Do we need healing in our world? Do we need hope? Do we need reconciliation? Heck yeah, we do. Absolutely. So this is what the well is about, is about how do we create communities where, where people who feel ostracized, sometimes excluded by hurtful, harmful religion and theology, based on people's sexuality and gender identity, um, sometimes by their race, sometimes we've you know, often wedded Christianity with capitalism or other unjust systems, right? How do we, we address these things? And that's why faith communities like the well are so important. It's saying we're inviting ourselves. Yeah, there's, in, there's a systemic injustice we need to address in our world. There, there's some major serious issues with our climate right now that we need to address and, and should impact and influence. And we need to ask questions like, how do we change our lifestyles? What does that look like? What kind of policies will help us in that, right? Um, instead of ignoring or denying, which is even worse, uh, you know, climate change, is like, this is a very huge reality. And we're called to be stewards of this world. What does that look like? We're, we're called to love our neighbor, which I think includes our, our four-legged neighbors as well. Um, I take this seriously. I think this is important for us. Um, so the third thing, um, kind of goes alongside of that is nonviolent lifestyle. It's this idea that when Jesus calls us to love our neighbor, how do we do that? Well, we don't kill them. <laughs> is that loving? Probably not. So, so how do we live this nonviolent way? Anabaptists, by the way, were often persecuted by Christians and Protestants, um, ostracized by both. But they were gentle, loving, compassionate, nonviolent people trying to live their simple lives. One of the earliest Anabaptists, is, there's a story, his name was Dirk Willems, and uh, he was rebaptized as an adult, which the church didn't like, and then he rebaptized others in his home, and so they put him in prison. And while he was in prison, somehow he got a hold of a few rags, he tied them in a sort of rope, and was able to climb out his window onto a frozen 
sort of moat around that area, around the prison. And since he was so thin from prison rations, he was able to walk across the ice. A guard saw him and started pursuing him. The guard, not living on prison rations, fell through the ice and yelled for help. Well, Dirk Williams, uh, as a part of his conviction, said, I need to, something within him said, I need to help this person. So he came back, he rescued the person. Here's an image. This is a, a well-known drawing of Dirk Williams here saving the guard. The sad story is he, because of his willing to risk his life, he was put back in prison, tortured, and eventually burned to death. But Anabaptists were ones that said, no, in light of all of this and persecution and everything, we're going to take the, the words of Jesus seriously. Turn the other cheek. The Sermon on the Mount is central for Anabaptists, absolutely central. I think there's a lot we can learn from them. Number four is the theology of an active God, an active, present, relational God. One of the things that I, I'm most appreciative of uh, my upbringing, especially in the Pentecostal churches, is that God wants to be known and can be experienced. We called it a personal relationship with God, and we'd set aside time every day. We called it a quiet time. Uh, and I still believe that's one of the most important things we can do. I don't use those words necessarily anymore, probably just because they have some baggage for me, but I try my best to set aside time to meditate, to read, to reflect, and to journal. I believe silence and solitude and stillness and opening ourselves up. Now, I may not be a Pentecostal charismatic, but it kind of opened the door to a sort of mystical contemplative tradition, which I find myself more in these days, which is still this idea that God can be experienced. My, my family and I recently, we went on a really the longest road trip we've ever taken as a family, 3,500 miles. We drove from Montana out to my home state. Well, I, my home state, I claim Colorado, but I was actually born in Wisconsin, so I have two home states. I don't think you're allowed to claim two home states, but I was born in Wisconsin, so my birth state maybe is a better term. And so we went to, it was cool, we got to see my house I grew up in, and it was fun showing my kids that. We went to five different capitals. We got little selfies at five different capitals. Madison, Wisconsin, Des Moines, Iowa, Lincoln, Nebraska, Denver, Colorado, and Cheyenne, Wyoming. It was, it was a 3,500-mile road trip, so we listened to some audio books. And one of them was a book called Chasing Magic Eels. It was written by a Christian psychologist, Richard Beck. I highly recommend it. This book was fantastic. He really talks about, hey, we live in a secular age, folks. People don't believe in God like they used to. What's up with that? Why, why is that the case? And people will say, well, there's a crisis of belief. And he goes like another layer or two down and says, actually, I think it's a crisis of attention. People aren't paying attention. Um, when I was in undergrad, I took a psychology class, and a part of this class, one of the assignments was to watch this video. Uh, perhaps you've seen this video. When it came on, I hadn't seen it before, it was black, there was a narrator, and the words were on the screen, and he invited you to basically watch how many times the white team passes the ball. So you get kind of mentally psyched, and then all of a sudden the video starts, and there's a small stage. There's three people dressed in white t-shirts, uh, and there's three people dressed in black t-shirts and each team has a basketball. They're dribbling and they're maneuvering all around. They're passing the ball. So immediately you're like, oh, I got to focus. So you, I get focus on the white team and I start counting the number of times they pass the ball. 
Well, it only lasts for about 45 seconds and the screen turns blank and the narrator comes back on and asks, you know, how many times did the white team pass the ball? And I was like, 15, 15, I counted 15. I'm pretty good. I was focused. I think it's 15. And of course the narrator says, yes, if you guess 15, you've guessed correctly. Sorry, my dog just bumped like camera. Um, and I was like, yeah, I got, I got it right. And then the narrator said, but did you see the dancing gorilla? And I, if you probably laughing cause you've seen this video. Uh, if you haven't Google it cause it's, it's pretty funny. You'll see the dancing gorilla now, but they rewound the video and right in the center, it's like a few seconds in a person in a gorilla costume walks across the screen, kind of dancing, gets in the center, looking, beats his chest, you know, dances, and then moves back across. And there's this red circle around, so you can't miss it. And I was like, ah, I missed, I missed a dancing gorilla. I mean, I got the number of passes right. The whole idea is this uh, understanding that we have selective attention, that if we focus on some things, we miss other things. And so in this book, Hunting Magic Eels, psychologist Dr. Richard Beck argues, he's like, basically, we're, we live in a secular enlightenment world. We're, we're focusing only on that which we can touch and taste and see and smell and feel. Uh, and that's all that we're focusing on. If we can't do that, then we're just not focusing on it. We're, our attention isn't there. That doesn't mean that in the video there's not a dancing gorilla. It just means we're not paying attention to it. It doesn't mean that God isn't here that God isn't moving in our lives. It just means we're not paying attention to it. I, I thought it was pretty compelling. It reminded me of a quote from a pastor. And this is a quote that I've been meditating on quite a bit over the last six months. And uh, he writes this, A.J. Sherrill, who's a, he was a former pastor of a, a church in Michigan. He says this, every moment of every day, the most significant reality in the entire universe is the radical availability of God's presence. Let me read that one more time, a little more slowly. Every moment of every day, the most significant reality in the entire universe is the radical availability of God's presence. I think sometimes we take this for granted. We grow up with this understanding that God's everywhere, but oftentimes we're not paying attention and we lose focus. I mean, how many moments of our day are spent living unaware of God's presence. And the, the Christian contemplative mystical traditions drawing, again, from the Pentecostal tradition as well, will say, anytime. You could be washing the dishes, changing diapers, driving to work, at work. You could be at home, hanging laundry, cooking dinner. You open yourself up. God's presence can be seen and experienced then and there. Maybe. Uh, perhaps the most significant thing that we could do with our lives is to become more aware of God's presence. And out of that awareness, we realize our own brokenness more. We realize when we've treated others in ways that are probably not loving, are probably more violent, whether physically or verbally or just mentally, or you know, we, we've cut other people down, we've shouted, we've lost our tempers, right? How we treat our kids, how we treat our spouses. If, if we're opening up to this presence and God is love and we feel this love and affirmation in our lives, wouldn't that change the way we live? In some Christian contemplative traditions, they call this practicing the presence of God, right? That we can practice this anytime, any place. It's radically available to us. As we close, I, I want to end our time 
with this idea. As we look back over the Christian traditions, we see sort of splintering and we see disagreement, even debate. But what we see also is this long history, a family tree or a river, uh, but it's a diverse river and it's been unfolding and evolving over the years. People have raised questions. People have tacked the 95 Thesis on the door. People have protested. People have broke up. People have raised their doubts. People have said, I don't think that's true. I think there's a better way of seeing the world. So there's all this diversity, like the universe, which is growing and expanding still. I think we're invited to be a part of this growing, expanding process. And so when we look at faith communities, people are feeling excluded or rejected or hurt or marginalized or, you know, oppressed. Or we live in a country where some of the wealthiest become more wealthy while the poor seem to struggle even more. Or we look at people who experience certain treatment based on the color of their skin um, or their human sexuality. Um, I, I think we're invited to look at our own faith traditions and say, we can do better. We need to do better. We need to ask ourselves those questions. What does it mean to love our neighbor as ourselves? Uh, when our earth is every summer, increased fires all over the place. Increased, last, we moved up to Montana in September and it was covered in smoke for six weeks. Like we couldn't go out for almost two weeks because the, the air quality was so poor. Something's wrong, right? We as, as communities of faith, looking back on this long story, need to say, okay, we're a part where people have innovated and questioned and experimented and explored and said, no, we can do things different. We can do things better. We can follow God's leading, God's spirit, which feels like it's growing and expanding, inviting us into this long story, this long evolving, unfolding story of God who's healing and reconciling and growing our world. You and I are invited to be a part of that. So hopefully there was something today you heard that stood out to you that hopefully you'll, you'll marinate on, maybe explore a little more. Maybe there's something you didn't hear before, but I think that there's a lot we can draw from, but I hope to leave you with that. What is God inviting you into? Yes, as a faith community, as the well, I think you should be asking that question and saying, I want to give myself to this evolving, growing community of faith. How do we follow God's uh, heart for us here, but also for you in your personal life? What does that mean? What is the invitation for you? What areas do you feel invited to grow and to evolve and to expand in? Let's pray. Creator God, thank you for the opportunity to learn a little more about the large family of God. As we get small glimpses of different Christian traditions, may it inspire us on our own path to further explore, experiment, and reform. We are part of a large universe that continues to expand and evolve. May it inspire us to open to new insights and new ways of understanding this world, new ways of understanding you. May we be even more aware of your presence, paying attention to the dancing gorillas, to your divine beauty that might be right in front of us, paying attention to the miracle of even each breath, of the beauty of a sunset, or the comfort of a close friendship. We ask these things through Christ, we pray. Amen.